take those Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And as you're making your way there, just a, just a couple of things. Uh, I'm excited for uh, the opportunities that lie ahead of us for this new year. I don't know how much reflecting you tend to do as one year comes to an end and a new year is fresh upon us, but I hope that you do take time to to look back on this past year and celebrate the things that God has done and the challenges that you've been faced with and have overcome through the power and the strength of our Lord, and that you would look forward with great anticipation, continue to work of advancing the gospel and furthering the kingdom of God. Man, I am so thankful to be here today. I'm so thankful that you are here today. I'm thankful for everyone that's watching and listening. From I know my father's watching from Corpus right now. we got friends and family around the globe that log in to watch. And as they do... My gentle reminder to them is, hey, you need to find a church home, right? We love that you worship with us and watch them sermons and stuff like that, but this does not replace the obligation that we have to be joined together with a local assembly of the body of Christ. And so uh, that's my encouragement to them. You're here, so that's awesome. Uh, This month, we're going to start off with lots of opportunities for us. I'm feeling much better. I mean, I had quite the journey this past year, my own self. Uh, but health-wise, I'm feeling much better. Uh, looking forward to re-engaging in more teaching opportunities this next year. My plan, just so you know, is hopefully by Easter or immediately following Easter, I'll start teaching a Bible study on Sunday mornings. Uh, but to begin the year off, I'm re-engaging and launching with uh, teachings on Wednesday night. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, Wednesday nights, just to paint a picture for you, on January uh, the 19th, we'll have a family meeting, and that will be the main thing that we do on that Wednesday night. Then on the 26th, we'll begin our Equipping You uh, courses uh, for this next uh, block of, I think it's 12 weeks or so. Uh, In that, we have um, Bible study opportunities for our children, And we have uh, different opportunities for adults to engage with. Uh, I'm excited to say that after uh, a lot of long layoff, pre-COVID, that now uh, beginning on the 26th, KCU will be uh, leading another round of 323 Fitness. And so they'll meet on Wednesday night so that we can piggyback off of childcare opportunities as well. So uh, she'll be sharing more about that probably next week, but that'll be one of the opportunities for Wednesday. Um, Daryl and Lisa, uh, they'll be teaching through uh, anxiety and fear. Uh, that'll be an opportunity. And then uh, I'm really excited that Joel and I will be teaching together uh, through worship. And so what we've done this past year, our church has uh, jumped in and uh, joined an affiliation of churches known as the G3 Church Network. And being a part of that network, we get certain access to some resources. And one of the resources that we have access to is a study on worship. And so what is that study going to look like? I'm glad you asked. I have an answer for you. Worship is why God created us. Yet worship is perhaps one of the most misunderstood biblical concepts 
And that misunderstanding has led to all sorts of problems in the corporate worship of our churches. This is why it is so important that we carefully study the Word of God to determine how He defines worship and how He wants us to worship Him as His people. Uh, We're going to begin this study on the 26th. Uh, We'll be taking turns teaching through it uh, each and every week, and so... I would love for you to come and to be a part of that study. And if not that one, then one of the other ones that we are offering. And then as we close out uh, this month, uh, a reminder or an announcement, depending on how well you are informed, uh, as on January the 30th, that is Pastor Terry and Micah's last Sunday here as they're entering into the retirement years. And so that Sunday will be a time of celebration and recognition and honoring. We'll have a big, um, you know, fellowship meal at the end of that service and uh, really highlighting his 50 years of faithfulness. And so we want you to be a part of that. Uh, Next week, we'll give out invitations here and you can put them on your refrigerator as a reminder. Uh, The church would like to give uh, Terry and Micah some type of love offering uh, in that, and so you have an opportunity to contribute to that. Uh, for those of you that like to give uh, through your phones or over the uh, computer, uh, you'll notice now that one of those drop-down uh, menu items in giving is now Pastor Terry's retirement love offering. So you can give directly to that. Uh, we'll be giving you more information as the weeks progress, and just a reminder for that. Let's see, what else can I think? Oh, I got a new Bible. So that's kind of exciting for me. Uh, I love the purchasing of Bibles. And so what you're going to notice is uh, the pew Bibles that we have are great Bibles. They're in the New American Standard uh, Bible. Uh, The translation that I'm reading for is a relatively new one. It's called the Legacy Standard Bible. Uh, It is an updated version of the New American Standard. In fact, what I'll do is, beginning next week, I'll put some information in those handouts that we give you every week on how you can learn more about the Legacy Standard Bible. Anyway, so I got this. I preached from it last week, and uh, I'm going to start preaching from it uh, on Sunday mornings. And uh, there are many reasons why, but uh, I know most of you don't have that translation in front of you. Uh, there is a digital version that you can you can get, uh, but just know that if you'll follow along with the New American Standard, it is very, very similar uh, to that translation. Okay, so with that being said, let's dive in. Romans chapter 8. Now you got to understand that it's been a long time since we've been in the book of Romans. In fact, uh, the last message I preached from Romans chapter 7 goes all the way back to November the 7th. So we're nearly two months removed from our study in this uh, book. And so before we get into chapter 8, we must understand that chapter 8 is continuing a thought from chapter 7. And so in order for us to fully understand what Paul is saying to us here, we need to look back at chapter 7. Now, disclosure, my voice is uh, being stretched this morning. Uh, I am not sick. That's good. Um, uh, What I have is the result of a 12-hour drive back from Alabama on Friday with my 7-year-old boy, who at times we got bored in the car, so we just took turns screaming as loud as we can. 
And so we would scream and scream and scream, and now I'm paying the price of that journey home. So I'll try to get through as clearly as I can. Okay, anyway, back to chapter 8. We need to understand that this goes back, it's continuing a thought from chapter 7. So let's back up a little bit. All right, so look back at chapter 7, beginning in verse number 15. Here, Paul is confessing that in his present reformed state, as a child of God, to some degree, he was still a a creature of the flesh. So Paul gives evidence that sin is still in him by admitting in verse number 15, he says, for what I am working out, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. So Paul hated sin. He hated falling short of the glory of God. He hated everything that went against the heart of God. But no matter how much he hated sin, no matter how much he struggled against sin, Paul still found himself at times in his life feasting at the table of temptation. And so the very hatred that he has in his heart towards sin is the testimony of of the goodness of the law. So verse 16 says, But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Uh, that To be good, it, it is beautiful, it is noble, it is excellent. In verse number 17, he says, So now... No longer am I the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. Remember, Paul's not avoiding personal responsibility for his actions. He was speaking of the conflict that exists between his desires and the sin within him. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me. But the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. And so again, Paul repeats the struggle. Verse 20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that in me evil is present, in me who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur within the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making a captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. And so from the moment, from the moment that someone puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be their Lord and their Savior. From that moment, that person, that child of God, that believer is completely acceptable to God and is ready to to meet Him. But as long as we remain in this world, as long as we remain this side of heaven, as long as we remain in this body of flesh, in, in blood, we remain subject to temptation and sin. That's why he says in verse number 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And so without hesitation, 
Paul testifies to the certainty of his eventual rescue. And he gives thanks to his Lord even before he's praising God, even before he has been set free completely from the presence of sin. And so he says in verse 25, Thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ our Lord. So so Paul, his primary emphasis in this section is not on our eventual deliverance from the presence of sin. No, his emphasis is on the conflict with sin that remains within us. And so he he ends this section by, by summarizing the two sides of that struggle. He says, so then, on the one hand, I find myself with my mind in serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is a constant conflict that exists between our new spiritual life in Christ and our old sinful nature. No longer are we slaves to sin, but Romans 6.18 tells us that we are now slaves of righteousness. And so while we may be slaves of a new master, we still live within enemy territory. So, so sin is no longer our master for those who are born again, the child of God. Sin is no longer our master, but sin is still a powerful adversary. And so if we don't take sin seriously, then we'll fall into it again and again and again. And if we don't take our victory seriously, then we were fail to realize and utilize the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. And that's where chapter 8 picks up. So, so chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Therefore. You can stop right there. Therefore. From the opening of chapter 8, Paul is indicating that there is a conclusion to be made from the earlier context. So in chapter 7, Paul describes the believer's ongoing battle against sin. In chapter 8, he's going to show us that Christ has provided us with what it takes to win against that battle. This is the, the gift of the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. So he says, therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation means that if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been set free from the penalty and the punishment of sin. That is great news. It's great. It's great news. For the child of God. No condemnation. Now the basis of this wonderful assurance is found in the phrase, in Christ Jesus. What do these words mean? What does it mean for a person to be in Christ Jesus? Well, in the simplest of terms, to be in Christ Jesus means that when a person puts their faith and trust in the Savior, then God places 
and positions that individual in his son. He places and positions them in Christ. Why? Well, think about the justice of God. God's justice is perfect. Therefore, he cannot overlook, nor will he excuse our sin, because that's not perfect justice. Sin must be paid for. So all the wrath that God holds towards sin was poured out upon his son at Calvary. And so when Jesus took our place on the cross, then he suffered the punishment that our sins deserve. And so when when Jesus proclaimed, it is finished, what he was saying that he had actually successfully paid the price that sin deserves. It's been accomplished. It is done. Which means in Adam, we are all condemned. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. Now this verse does not say that there is no consequences for our sin. We've all sinned. And although we don't want to, we will continue to to struggle with temptation and, and give in to sin. I mean, we see this reality played out time and time, not just in our own lives, but we even see it in Scripture. We see examples from from great people of faith giving in to that temptation over and over again. Think about Abraham. Abraham lied about his wife more than one occasion. David, I mean, we we know the stories. David commits adultery. David commits murder. You think about Peter. Peter literally tried to cut the head off of an individual on the night that they came uh, to arrest our Savior. Like we ourselves will still make mistakes. At times in our own lives, we'll still give in to temptation and we will sin. And when we sin, Rest assured that there will be consequences because of those sins. But consequences are not the same thing as condemnation. Those are two separate things. And so while there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, there is still a judgment to be faced by all of us. Every child of God will be judged for their faithfulness in Christ. Not one of us will escape that kind of judgment. We will be judged on how well we have used our spiritual gifts for for the kingdom of God and for the glory of the Father. We will be judged on how we've exercised the gift that He has given to us. We will be judged on how faithfully we have served the church and how faithfully we have served one another. I mean, the judgment of the believer will all take place at the great judgment of Christ. And we can't escape it. I mean, I think it's such a sad reality that there are many Christ followers, or I'll say those who who are believers, who, 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 who never take the time to understand how God has given them a spiritual gift to be used for the furtherance of His kingdom. 
Churches, our church, churches around the world are filled with attenders who never understand their giftedness and never exercise that gift for the glory of God. We will be judged for that. We can't escape it. For the child of God, we have been given the Holy Spirit for many reasons. One of the reasons that we have that Holy Spirit is to empower us, to equip us, to serve our Father. That's why it is my belief that every single member of First Baptist Church of Kingsland is expected to be serving for the glory of God. That's the expectation. If you don't like that expectation... If you think that expectation is too much or, or too severe, rest assured, there's plenty of churches around here that expect very little from its members. But not here. I want us all to be walking in faithful obedience to the Word of God and to the will of our Father. And so, in chapter 8, Paul is gently reminding us that the law condemns. But those who are in Christ Jesus will not be condemned. Because those that are in Christ Jesus now have a new relationship to the law. And so in verses 2 through 4, Paul's going to make three statements about this new relationship that we have with the law if we are in Christ Jesus. So let's look at the first one. Verse number 2. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life is Christ, in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And so, the first statement. Those that are in Christ Jesus, well, the law cannot claim you. The law cannot claim you. Because in Christ Jesus, we have been set free from the law of sin and death. We now have life in the Spirit. The law of sin and death is what Paul explains in chapter 7. Specifically, verses 7 through 25. But, but now, the law of the Spirit of life is what Paul talks about in chapter 8. Well, my bad. So the law of spirit of life is what he's going to be explaining in this chapter. So if you're in Christ, the law cannot claim you. Because when you are in Christ, you are both dead to the law. That's Romans 7, verse 4. You are both dead to the law and you are set free from the law. That's Romans 8, verse 2. So if you're in Christ, <coughs> the law cannot claim you. If you're in Christ, the law cannot condemn you. Yes, it's true. My sin deserves the penalty of death. So does yours. All of our sin does. But Jesus' death has paid that penalty for me. So His death paid the penalty that I deserve. And then the Holy Spirit 
applies that redemptive act on my behalf, on my account. That's how it works. And so verse number 3, it says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here, Paul speaks of the impotence of the law to save us. The law could not save us. The law can only condemn us. Why? Where do we find the weakness of the law? Well, the lack of the ability for the law to save us resides in the lack of of our ability to be perfectly obedient to the law. See, the weakness of the law is found in us. It's found in the flesh, in our fallen nature. It says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How did he do it? God sent his son to do for us what the law could not do for us. Jesus came to earth. Jesus didn't come down to earth as an angel. Jesus came to earth as a man. Notice that he didn't come in sinful flesh. That would have made him a sinner. No, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Which means the the perfectly righteous one clothed himself in humanity. And then he bore our sins in his body on the cross. The cross of Jesus was where God poured out his judgment on sin. And our sin... And as those who are in Christ, our sin, they were imputed to Jesus. They were credited to Jesus. And God condemned them at Calvary. That's why there's no condemnation left for anyone who is in Christ Jesus because that condemnation had already taken place when Jesus was crucified. It's done. It's finished. If you're in Christ, you're no longer condemned. So those that are in Christ, the law cannot claim you. If you're in Christ, the law cannot condemn you. And then thirdly and finally, if you're in Christ, the law cannot control you. The law cannot claim you, cannot condemn you, nor can it control you. Verse 4. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Although we are no longer in bondage to the law's condemnation and penalty, the law still reflects the moral character of God. The law still reflects his desire for creation. And so what the law was unable to accomplish, the Spirit is able to do. The law does not have the power to produce holiness in our lives. The law can only reveal unrighteousness 
and, and, and give condemnation for that. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, the indwelling Holy Spirit enables us to walk in obedience to the word and the will of our Father. Without that, we can't walk in obedience. So Christ not only has come to set us free from the penalty of sin, He also came to set us free from the power of sin, from the practice of sin in our lives. So the righteous demand that in God's law is fulfilled through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's wonderful news for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so where do we go from here? How do we see this self manifest itself in and through our lives? I'm glad you asked. Because we pick up on that thought next week as we begin in verse number 5. And so how I'll end it for today. I just want to read that next little section that we'll unpack next week together. Beginning in verse number 5. He said, For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, are not able to please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We will unpack all of that next week. But just know today, what's my challenge for you? Oh, my challenge is, to give thoughtful consideration of your standing before the holiness and righteousness of God. The only way that we can be approved by God is by having faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Have you submitted and surrendered your life to the Savior? Have you given Him full access to your desires, to your dreams, to your expectations? Are you holding something back? What would it take for you, whatever that means, what would it take for you to walk in faithful obedience to the Word of God and to the will of our Father? Let me ask it this way. What has God called you to do? If you're a child of God, and He's giving you His Spirit, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, and that power of the Holy Spirit resides within each of His children, 
So how is the power of the Holy Spirit working itself in and through your lives? What's your ministry? Do you know? Have you thought about it? Have you given your all to it? A ministry takes on different shapes and different forms. Sometimes they happen within the organization of the church. Sometimes it happens outside a structure organization of the church. But, but what is God calling you to do? And rest assured, know this from your pastor. I believe it is our responsibility as the leaders of, of the church, Scripture teaches us, that we are to help you discover what that gift is, what your calling is. We're to support and encourage you as you chase after what God has placed inside of you. So what that means for us is that we have a brand new year before us. And hopefully at, at this point next year, if the Lord allows us to be together and, and he hadn't come back yet, if we're still here, Hopefully we're here and we have new ministries and new opportunities are happening within and without the church. All for the glory of God. And in this moment, I'd like to close this with a prayer. And I'd just like to challenge you with the thought, what's the one commitment that you can make today so that you can walk out of here in a greater committed relationship with our Father than when you came in here? What's your one thing? Heavenly Father, as we take time to just reflect, pray that your Spirit would actively work among us, making known unto us sins that need to be confessed, commitments that, that need to be made, whatever it is in this moment, Father, I pray that we... Don't, don't begin to let our minds wander. We don't begin to think about what we're going to do next, that we just rest in this moment. We think upon your word. We desire to be obedient to your will. What's the one thing? Please, make known unto us all one thing. As we continue our worship of you, we, we, we collectively sing our praise unto you, express our love for you, our gratitude for, for, your sa- for your Son, our Savior, for your Word, for this church. Be pleased by what you see in us in this time. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we sing through this song, please know that J.E. and I are here at the front. We'd love to talk with you and to pray with you in any way that we can.